You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au. I'm McGregor Duncan, the Chief Development Officer at Westpac. I'm here at Money 2020 in Singapore, and I'm joined today by Jonathan Larson. Jonathan is the Chief Innovation Officer at Ping An, and he's also the Chairman and CEO of Ping An's Global Voyager Fund, which is a billion dollar private equity venture capital fund which invests in growth companies focused primarily on fintech and health tech. Uh, around the world. Uh, earlier in your career, Jonathan, I, I think I'm right, you were, uh, you were the CEO of City's global consumer business uh, and you spent uh, 20 years as a, as a, as a retail banker uh, in Asia. Uh, you're a good friend of Westpac's. Uh, I'm really happy that you've uh, taken the time to chat to us today. Mac, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, so, Jonathan, maybe we could start with uh, a brief intro from you about Ping An, your role at Ping An. How did you come to find yourself at Ping An after a lengthy career in banking? Okay, well that's a lot already uh, as a first question. So uh, the very short story of Ping An, very large China-based financial institution started in the insurance business, PNC and life insurance. Those businesses are still very much at the core of our company, but we're a lot beyond that. We have a large bank, um, not large by the big five standard of China, but it's a $500 billion bank, so it's still pretty large. Um, We have a very wide range of other financial businesses. In fact, we have the widest range of financial licenses of any company in uh, China in the financial industry. We're the only non-state controlled large financial institution in China. Um, The company is founder-led by Peter Ma, who um, created the company in 1988. And I think the way to think about it, you know, the first 10, 15 years were growing the, the base businesses and establishing them. Uh, the um, next um, you know, five, ten years were about pivoting to a customer orientation and centering around NPS, integrated client databases. All of the call centers across all of the platforms were integrated as far back as 2000 actually. Uh, and then probably from about 2008, 2009 on, so while the financial crisis is going on in the rest of the world, Peter Maher at Ping An is thinking, where do we take this company? And he can see the exponential growth of platforms like um, Tencent and Ali and the way in which those platforms were transforming their businesses. And he realized that we're actually entering into a new era, um, you know, what we call the era of the data economy and of the uh, technology ecosystem. And he realized that, that the, the trends that he was seeing were going to transform finance fundamentally. And so there was both a defensive and a, an offensive um, imperative in that, but also that this new economy was going to connect businesses and industries in fundamental ways that we hadn't seen previously as physical distribution becomes less and less important. So he pivoted the company to be a technology company. Um, so w- what, what, is the, what are the results of that? Um, today we're the only large institution in the world that uh, is all cloud. We have pretty much no legacy technology and all of our technology is fungible across every platform that we have. Um, So that's number one. Uh, Two, I think the the company embarked on a deep process of digitizing its fundamental processes. Um, So to take a very good example would be our life insurance business. We have 1.4 million agents and everything in their life is digital. From the way they're recruited using chatbot interviews, which we find more reliable at scale than humans, 
all the way through to the way their CRM is uh, organized and the way their client contacts on social media are engaged with using um, automated robots to uh, find content that's going to be relevant and then of course learn from the responses that we get from clients uh, to the way training is done. Uh, it's 95% automated now and it's highly customized, highly vectored towards the skill needs of each individual. So we also have, I guess, you know, very deep AI capabilities. Um, you know, most companies in the West would outsource their AI development at Pingyan. We now, we're getting up to close to a thousand real AI professionals. We do our own facial recognition, we do our own voice print, we do micro expression. It turns out there are 54 muscles in your face uh, that move involuntarily. And so look, when we're having a conversation and I say to you, you don't look convinced. That's because your facial expression is telling me something and uh, we've found that machines can now interpret this nonverbal communication. Um, so that's a powerful platform in our credit underwriting process and many others actually. Um, so uh, we, we now have voice robots that can have five, eight minute conversations with you and you have no idea you're talking to a computer. So we're at the cusp, we believe, of just fundamental transformation. And um, that's you know, what a large part of Pingan's R&D is all about. But we've also been able to create new generation businesses like Lufax, which is the largest digital wealth management platform in the world. Uh, and secondly, Good Doctor, which is the largest telemedicine platform in the world. Lufax was valued at $39.5 billion in December last year as, as, as uh, the consequence of its C-round financing with external investors. Uh, uh, Good Doctor is listed in Hong Kong, has a market cap, I guess, of just under $7 billion, uh, but now has, I think we just disclosed last week in our announcement for earnings, I think they're at about 256,000, sorry, 256 million uh, registered users. So the scale of these platforms is extraordinary. So uh, why did I join? Um, I guess, you know, I think the opportunity to, to work with this unique company and in my role with the Voyager Fund, to be the interface between that and the whole world of innovation in uh, digital finance and in digital health. Um, it really was a unique opportunity and I've been there, I'm coming up to two years. Our fund has just completed its first full year of operation and I'd say that um, it's just been a blast so far. Yeah, terrific. I mean, the scale of China is just so daunting um, and the size of the internal market is so, is so vast. Uh, do you spend much time thinking about uh, the opportunity for Ping An to export some of that capability uh, offshore? I mean, one of, the, one of the things we notice with a lot of the, the Chinese tech companies is that they tend to follow the Chinese diaspora, but they've really struggled to move outside of that tight network. How do you think about that opportunity and that challenge? Well, I think the first thing is, as a Chinese company, we want to be very careful about how we do that. We definitely see opportunities to expand our business beyond China. Um, that's you know, partly a revenue opportunity, it's part of diversification opportunity. Um, we have no interest whatsoever in buying trophy assets in far-flung destinations uh, with large amounts of capital. It's just not what we do. What we are interested in doing is leading with our capabilities. Um, in particular our tech capabilities, our um, tokenization blockchain, our um, AI capabilities and our platform capabilities. Starting with finance, so we have a business called OneConnect, which is our corporate enterprise platform 
And what that does is it takes a whole bunch of our um, proprietary technologies that we have built to solve problems for our customers and uh, for our business. We make those services available now to um, about 500 banks in China and a couple of thousand non-bank financial institutions. That business now has a Singapore office. We have a CEO who's at this conference, by the way, Tan Binru, who's excellent. She used to run Microsoft for Southeast Asia. And um, Binru is very, very rapidly scaling this business into Southeast Asia. We're finding that um, banks, um, insurance companies, and other institutions have um, a very strong appetite for the types of technologies that we have. I think what's interesting to clients is that these technologies haven't been dreamed up in the abstract. They've actually been uh, built in response to real issues, to real business problems, real customer needs, and they've been deployed at scale in a real setting. And I think the credibility that comes with that, plus the ability to, de to deliver efficiently um, on the cloud, um, and of course to price based on impact and results, that's a really powerful combination, and I think that business has an enormous runway. So that would be one example. Our Lufax platform, about a year ago, we set up an initial Singapore office as well. And we have, um, I guess, uh, it's been a, a, a uh, productive, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a particularly rapid uh, development, and the scale is still small relative to Lufax in China, but we see an enormous appetite for Chinese investors, uh, so people who live in China, who might be investors with Lufax, uh, to gain global diversification. And through our Singapore platform, we can offer access to almost any asset class in the world. Uh, we can do so with exactly the same low-cost technology and low-friction technology that we do with Lufax in China. And um, right now, probably the biggest constraint is the tightening of currency controls that took effect um, over the last 12 months or so in China. Obviously, these things, these things ebb and flow. So I think as things uh, open up, we expect that business will be very successful. Lastly, I think the third example I'd give is Good Doctor. Um, we announced publicly a partnership with Grab Taxi in Southeast Asia. I think Grab has a lot of experience in this part of the world that can be helpful to us. And we're sort of figuring out how their assets and ours can be combined in a unique way to create a, a health proposition. But we're also having uh, in parallel conversations in other parts of the world. So it's a, uh, there's a lot going on. Um, but it's very, very early days, but it's asset light, it is technology led, and it is led by capabilities that Ping An has proven they have uh, through their core business. You mentioned earlier uh, Ping An's focus on artificial intelligence. Um, you know, in other applications, for instance, uh, autonomous cars, we've really seen uh, artificial intelligence plateau and really struggle to, to achieve that last 1% needed in order to productionize uh, are the vehicles. How do you, what's your take on artificial intelligence in the moment, particularly uh, in the context of financial services? Is, is there just so much low-hanging fruit uh, that even basic artificial intelligence applications have a lot to offer? Um, well, I think that, um, that it's a very, very broad topic. So, um, you know, I think in areas like image recognition, uh, we're now at a level where we have, you know, um, enterprise-grade reliable solutions. Um, so our facial recognition, for example, in China, is, it's about 99.8% accurate. So it more or less eliminates identity fraud uh, within the country because we're able to reference the uh, national um, ID card database uh, for the photo matching. Um, 
interestingly, in areas like medical imaging, we're finding this is uh, pretty much ready for prime time. So our most recent investment is a company called AirDoc in Beijing. And what they do is uh, they take an image of your retina, scan it, uh, run an algorithm over it, and from that alone can tell 35 disease types. Um, and we had an instance just literally last week where one of their, um, one of their patients at a checkup center in China actually was diagnosed as having a nearly detached retina. This guy was probably a couple of days away from irreparable blindness in one eye. And fortunately, the alarm bells uh, rang because it's a very serious condition, entirely detected by the algorithm. And uh, the company was able to get a hold of the guy and uh, get him to an ophthalmologist and get him fixed. Um, so I think uh, that's just an example. We have many um, uh, organizations around the world working on you know, imaging for CT scans, for example, for lungs, for brain, for um, uh, many organs of the body. And uh, we're finding that um, uh, these are very, very powerful technologies. Um, natural language is another area that's extremely powerful. So there are you know, many engines now that can ingest literally millions of pages of text uh, where you can query that text and, and sort of have, um, um, have, the, have the, uh, the database and the rule, rule engine basically answer questions about what's in that text. Um, it's pretty extraordinary stuff. Um, so I think there'll always be that last 1% limitation no matter what you're trying to do. Um, there is with human intelligence anyway, right? Uh, because we certainly uh, don't get it right a lot of the time. And I think the question is, what is the context you put that into? And I think there's as much art in creating the right context and the right deployment model as there is in actually building the algorithms themselves. Um, because the algorithms are going to be a product of um, just the level of certainty uh, that is possible, you know, give, given the observable phenomena. And that's going to have natural limitations. There is no such thing as certainty. And so then, then the question is, so how do, you, how do you deploy something? And where do you set the thresholds for, let's say, manual intervention or manual review or some other kind of technology to be deployed? If we could just change tack on to financial services. Uh, so you spent 25 years uh, in banking uh, before moving to Ping An. Knowing what you've learned over the past two years, if you found yourself again as the CEO of Cities Consumer Bank or as the CEO of Westpac, what's the one piece of advice that you would give your former self or you'd give to our CEO, Brian Hartzell? Um, well, I, I, I'm not going to presume to give Brian any advice. Um, uh, I'm very happy to receive Brian's advice anytime he's willing to give it to me. But anyway, um, I, I think that, um, you know, bite harder sooner on these strategically challenging questions. So, you know, when you have, you know, a legacy model that's constrained by its own technology, for example, um, I think there's far more value in, um, you know, challenging that and finding a way to overcome us, you know, probably sooner than I would have been inclined to do, you know, in my previous roles. I think the other point I'd make is that the days of the mega project, I think, need to be behind us entirely. I think everything we do needs to be, you know, a coherent sequence of incremental steps where you have the ability to course correct, where you have the ability to take components and swap them. Because what you're doing now, uh, what looks like relevant technology now, may well be completely obsolete in three or five years time. 
Um, and I think that's just a, a phenomenon that is, is reality. And how do you manage that practically though? So you, you know, Westpac's got 12 million customers needing to serve them day in, day out. Obviously, we have to continue to invest and fortify that core competence and capability. Are you suggesting that we need to uh, build new capability outside the group? Uh, uh, what are your thoughts on, on I think all banks are grappling with these questions, Mac. Um, I think many banks want to try and create a parallel uh, business model using contemporary technology, uh, finding ways to integrate with e-commerce, with social in new ways. Uh, that might be much more difficult using your legacy platform. I think the frontier that's going to be really interesting is how do you, if you've got that, how do you migrate from your legacy? And you know, when I was at City, I think I was involved in 56 um, system conversions as we consolidated platforms around the world, mostly using a combination of mainframe and uh, what would today be thought of as legacy server technology. Um, and it's always a very lengthy and complicated process. You always have problems that require retrofit at the end, sometimes that create a small crisis. Um, organizations that do it a lot get very good at it, but it's very painful. And what's really going on there is you're taking a lot of data that you'll probably never access, and you're finding a new home for it. So the first question is, do you even need to do that? The second thing is that you're spending a lot of time retrofitting your new platform for largely irrelevant and redundant complexity that's embedded in your legacy. And I think that um, you know, this is also an opportunity to simplify. And I think probably most of us that have been in financial services in our careers and have thought about customer needs, you know, most of us intuitively would agree that probably what our customers need are fewer products that are simpler and more flexible. Um, and you know, within one product construct, you should be able to shape that product in the way that the customer needs, as opposed to having many, many instances of the product trying to capture every possible variation um, and hardwiring those variations. So I think that you know, if, if a, an institution can move to that simpler, more flexible model and can find a way of migrating its legacy customers, but also its legacy rule base, you know, I think that could be powerful. There are some staging technologies that are available now that allow, let's say, you know, I'm the customer, you're the bank, um, I go onto your new platform, I want to look up my account, so guess what? It has to go back to the old platform, find my account, bring it across. Um, if that happens cumulatively, over a year or two, you're going to get 70, 80, 90% of your account base onto the new platform. Um, if there's residual data that actually doesn't get accessed, that can probably be smart archived in a way that is very low cost and with the database tools now that we have very accessible. So I think there's a, there's a whole lot of new thinking that's needed around how to do this. Uh, recognize though that that's simply the starting point. All that does is replicate your current account base you know, on a contemporary platform. The next question is how have the business models changed and what do you need to do to be competitive in this new data landscape? How do you embed into e-commerce? Um, how do you uh, bring other services into your financial service offering? How do you empower consumers, advocate for consumers? How do you give them price transparency? These are going to be the new vectors of competition. So you've mentioned a little bit there about how you see the future of finance. Uh, I mean, are there any blind spots that you see the banks having? Uh, you know, 
Uh, do you see the banks failing to focus on particular areas that they should be, failing to allocate resources where they should be? Do you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? Look, my general view is if you look at most banks, they essentially replicate bank to bank pretty much exactly the same set of technologies and functionalities. Um, and the amount of differentiating technology in the stack in any individual bank is a, is a tiny percentage of the totality. Um, and I think what happens is all of that gets replaced by you know, SaaS platforms over time that are highly user configurable and customizable to the needs of the bank. Um, and I think over time there's going to be very little real technology that's left inside a bank other than areas where the bank you know, believes that it has unique access to data, unique ability to build use cases, um, train models and so forth. So I think what technology looks like is going to be fundamentally different. So you ask, are there blind spots? Well, I think the fact that most banks really aren't grappling with this is a blind spot. I think a second area is compliance. Most banks in the world post-crisis in the developed world you know, built very complicated manual processes ahead of their technology to solve perceived compliance problems and in many cases regulatory demands. Uh, most banks are now stuck with those processes and haven't built out the technology. Um, most people are aware of this, so I don't, I don't know if it's a blind spot, but it's definitely a gap. Um, I think that, um, yeah, just take those two. Um, I think if banks could address those two systematically, enormous progress can be made. Um, maybe we'll change tack again. Uh, we'll try to, uh, maybe we'll do something a little bit different and we'll uh, uh, try to have a bit of fun. Um, I wouldn't mind just uh, uh, giving you a few topics and getting your one word responses. Okay. Is it a, is it, are these things a fad or are they the future? Uh, so fad, if you think it will, um, it'll, it'll recede so into the... restrict to one word? Uh, you, can't, you, 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 can, you can wax lyrical if you so choose. Uh, uh, so fad, if, if, if it will recede into the past, future if you think it has a, a future in banking. So we'll okay. start off with blockchain. Um, look, I think much of the rhetoric is a fad. Um, I, I think of the, sorry, I can't do this one in one word, sorry. Um, I think of blockchain as sort of a way of representing stuff in the real world digitally, but it's just one way of representing it. Blockchain is a subset of the broader topic of tokenization. So you know, when you need um, multiple points of um, uh, verification, uh, when you need some decentralization of the record itself, the primary record, when you need encryption, public-private key, um, blockchain does have the ability to create you know, smart contract elements. So when you want to actually build contractual triggers into a contract and have that built into a digital widget, blockchain is a great way to do it. At Pingan, we've got an enormous amount of resource working on various blockchain applications, many of which are real now and are being used. But blockchain is just one way of representing the world digitally. Ultimately, everything we see and touch is going to be represented digitally. Everything is going to have a digital twin. Or if it's a virtual entity, it will be digital, uh, like a currency, ultimately. And I think that um, uh, blockchain plays an important role. There'll be certain categories of um, things where a normal database, an Oracle database, a relational database will be perfectly adequate for the purpose. So I think it's one solution. Um, a lot of people want to invest in blockchain. I'm not sure how investable a category it is. I don't think there's a blockchain investment you can make. I think blockchain is a way of doing things. Um, 
It is taking a long time to become mainstream, I think, uh, and, and probably will, because you know, as with AI, um, a lot of the challenge is not with the technology, it's with how you construct the use case. And in the case of blockchain, it's normally applications that require many different parties to agree to a protocol. Getting that agreement is actually much more important than the technology itself. Uh, next one, cryptocurrencies? Um, I'd say mostly a fad. I think I was here last year and I made the observation that um, you know, I see a huge future for tokens and blockchain linked to assets and representing assets. I think most of what we see in crypto is tokens and blockchain without any assets. And to me, it is no different from going and having your own casino chips made uh, and selling them off and then pretending that they're worth something. So uh, I really think it's a fad. Um, and I think we'll look back in five years' time and we'll say, you know, what on earth was the world thinking about? Now, topic close to our, uh, both of our hearts, corporate venture capital. Um, so look, um, I run a corporate venture capital fund. Um, I think that uh, there's real value, um, firstly, in um, being in dialogue with many different entrepreneurial organizations around the world. If you're going to be, if you're trying to understand what's going on and what the frontier of the future is. Uh, in our case, we do a lot of R&D, but we certainly recognize we have no monopoly on innovation. Uh, so we learn an enormous amount simply by being in touch with pretty much everybody out there. Um, clearly, if you've got money and you're an investor, uh, you have a platform for a very different conversation with target companies than if you're just a potential user. Um, and I think the ability to create alignment between you know, ownership and the use cases that you want to build with the target companies, I think that can be a really powerful combination. But there are many examples where people have made the investment and done nothing with it. Uh, so like everything, it's how you use it. Final one, uh, open banking. Um, look, I think open banking is interesting. Uh, I think the concept of open banking has become a sort of a, um, a political cure-all in some people's minds, a panacea. Open banking by itself actually doesn't change anything. Um, all it does is it means that um, you know, intermediaries that want to create new layers of value, let's say between a financial services provider and a customer, are able to do that according to a standard protocol. Interestingly, in the United States, you know, we've had the same effect of open banking without any regulation um, or without any regulatory guidance. Companies like Plaid, um, and I guess um, uh, Mint, uh, Yodely, etc., you know, for now 15 years, um, have been actually accessing uh, uh, confidential proprietary data, initially through screen scraping and more recently through APIs. So whether the regulatory piece is necessary or not, I think is open to debate. Um, but look, I think most banks need to find ways of you know, making their customers available to other digital providers in a seamless way when their customers want that to happen. Um, I think it's kind of common sense. I think it's just part of the new reality and it's part of the new digital economy. Jonathan, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I always ask people for book recommendations. I'm always looking for um uh, for people's thoughts on what they've recently read or enjoyed. You're one of the more insightful people that I regularly deal with. What have you been reading recently? Anything you read over the Christmas break that you could recommend? Well, there's a fellow called Samuel Butler, and he wrote a book called Euron. And um, so he went to Cambridge, uh, and then he went to New Zealand and became a sheep farmer somewhere near Christchurch. And in 1868, he wrote a couple of papers 
Uh, one is called Darwin Amongst the Machines. He actually was a relative of Charles Darwin. And in Erewhon, Erewhon is just nowhere written backwards. And um, so I guess it's a utopian novel. And there are two chapters in it where he talks about machine evolution versus biological evolution. And uh, what's interesting is he observes that, you know, since Richard Arkwright created the world's first factory in 1760 in Derby, that machines have evolved at a prodigious rate. They're miniaturizing in exactly the same way nature tends to miniaturize, from you know, giant dinosaurs to tiny creatures uh, with the same intelligence. Um, and then he talks about things like, let's say, the, the governor in a steam engine, you know, the um, centrifugal device that allows the engine speed to be regulated so that the engine doesn't overrun. And he says, isn't that a form of intelligence? Um, and then he says, well, what about a whole train system itself? Uh, what is really driving the train? What is the job of the driver? The driver is really just a sensor. And if we had an automatic sensor, uh, then we'd probably replace the driver. I think that's not bad for 1868 for a sheep farmer in New Zealand with or without the Cambridge education. Uh, but it's well worth reading. I think it's very thought provoking. And I think these questions about what intelligence is and how we deal with the next three, four, five iterations of AI, you know, where we actually have systems that write their own code or coding bots that can actually access code automatically from GitHub and assemble their own code sequences that perform new uncharted functions. Uh, clearly these raise many, many questions. Even what is a human being when you just spend 10 minutes talking to a voice bot that you thought was a person. Uh, so I would encourage you to read that. It's fascinating. I'll, uh, I'll place the order on Amazon tonight. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Terrific to chat to you as always. Uh, and hope to catch up with you again soon. Thank you, Mac. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au. Thanks for listening. Thank you.